This injury here is a long sort of a cut. Just explain how you got that injury and when you got that injury. I got it yesterday when I was working on the car. What, how are you saying it occurred? Well, the fan spins this way, yeah. so if I'm standing at the front of the car, yeah. like here, fan yeah. spins that way, the alternator sits there, yeah. and there's some wires running down underneath the bottom of the radiator, there's a wire at the top, mm. which was for a light that I just recently put on, and it must have been when I was putting my hand down there, I caught the fan. <clears throat> Why did you have it running uh, at that stage, when you were checking the well, radiator? Clumsy worker. Hi guys, welcome to episode one of the True Crime Sisters podcast. I'm Harry and I'm here with my sister Bill. Some of you might be aware that we've re-recorded this episode. We got a bit of feedback about the quality and we just decided we'd be best off improving that before. Yeah, yeah. so it was more the um, quality of the actual audio. So we obviously didn't sound great. It was our first episode, but people couldn't even really hear it because there was a lot of background noise and we just didn't quite know how to work our equipment. So we just thought we'll re-record it. Um, and yeah, we'll pop it up. Just a quick warning before we begin that the content of our podcast may be disturbing to some listeners. And although we aim to be as sensitive as possible, the topic is true crime. And in general, true crime is disturbing. Today's episode of the True Crime Sisters is about Paul Denyer, one of the most well-known and feared serial killers in Melbourne history. The clip you heard at the beginning of the podcast was the interview he had with police after he'd been apprehended. Paul Charles Denyer was born on the 14th of April in 1972, making him 45 years old today. He was born to Anthony and Maureen Denyer and was one of six children. Later in Paul's childhood, his parents separated and Maureen raised the kids the best she could as a single mother. By most reports, the Denyers were a largely normal single parent family. As a baby, it is reported that Paul rolled off his nappy change table, knocking his head quite hard. Apparently the family joked about this as Paul grew up, attributing childhood slip-ups to the bump on the head as a baby. Although there's no scientific proof, an injury to the head during childhood seems to be a bit of a common theme in the childhood of many serial killers. I think that's either really interesting or, you know, I think everyone probably gets a bump to the head when they're yeah. young. And so unless it can be sort of proven by like an acquired brain injury, yeah. it's sort of just, I reckon you could almost say everyone's had a bump on the head. Like you'd think if it had actually had an impact, there would be a change on an MRI or something, there would be a noticeable. Yeah. And unless there's that, it's kind of hard to say whether it's, whether that's related or not yeah. related. Paul performed poorly in school, both socially and academically. His peers gave him a hard time due to his size, being significantly taller and more overweight than average. When Paul was a preteen, his family moved from Sydney to Melbourne, choosing Langwarren to settle down. Langwarren is in the southeast of Melbourne, about 42 kilometres from the city centre. Paul's childhood included many of the classic precursors of antisocial personality disorder. Paul would often torment his younger sister by stealing her toys, cutting their throats and leaving them for her to find. At 10 years old, Paul moved on to live prey, cutting the throat of the family kitten before hanging it from a tree in the backyard. That's pretty much as deserving as a 10-year-old could yeah, be. absolutely. I'd be getting into a psychologist straight away. But I guess, like, she had six children as well, so who knows? She may have just thought, I mean, who knows? Her time was probably pretty compromised having six children. Mm. Paul's descent into criminality was a sign that Paul displayed a blatant disregard for the feelings and rights of others, displaying no empathy for life outside of his own. Following the death of the kitten, when Paul was in his last year of primary school, his behaviour escalated further. 
One day, a boy with a pencil in his mouth made a nasty comment towards Paul, and Paul hit the boy so hard that the pencil became lodged in his throat, just missing his windpipe. At 13 years old, Paul was charged with the theft of a motor vehicle, and at 15, Paul forced another boy to masturbate in front of a group of children and was charged with assault. The signs were definitely there that Paul Denyer was a dangerous and sick human being. As a teenager, Denyer applied to work for the Victorian police, but his application was denied due to his being overweight. He was briefly employed by a boat-building company called ProMarine. His employers there remember him as being lazy and incompetent. While he was working there, one co-worker reported seeing him lighting his shoes on fire. Another co-worker entered the workshed after seeing Paul acting suspiciously in there, only to find a long, sharp, homemade knife that Paul had been working on. Paul was fired not long after starting there. And thank God he didn't get into the police force as well. Oh my God, yes. On the 19th of February, 1993, a woman named Donna Vaines was hanging out at her home with her young baby in Seaford, which is a seaside suburb in southeast Melbourne, not far from Langwarren. Donna was feeling uneasy that night and she wasn't sure why. She decided to go with her partner Les on his pizza delivery route. They were out for around 45 minutes. When they got home, they discovered a horrific sight. Donna's cat Buffy had had her throat cut and her intestines pulled from her body and strewn throughout the house. Buffy's kittens had their throats cut also and had been drowned in the bathtub. There was writing on the walls written in their blood saying, Dead Don and Donna, you're dead. There was also another writing that he'd done, and that was something like Donna and Robin, and it never came to light who Robin was or... No, that's true, isn't it? Yeah. When she went into her baby's room, there was a huge knife stabbed into her baby's cot mattress and pictures of naked women in the cot and stuck to the walls. It appeared that the intruder had climbed into an open window using the baby's nappy bucket pushed up against the wall. The police were called and a report of the incident was made. There had apparently been a number of similar break-ins in the area and police were very disturbed by the scene. A few days later, Donna was at her sister Trisha's house and they were telling Trisha's neighbour, Paul Denyer, about the break-in. Denyer told the women if he had ever found out who had broken into Donna's house that he would have taken care of them or he would take care of them, which is, it's him. Yeah, so he's basically saying to them that he'll take care of them and it's actually him that did it in the first place. Which he obviously very well knows. Yeah. When Denya was apprehended later that year, he admitted that he'd gone there to kill Donna, but she wasn't home, which is terrifying. He could have had a fourth victim that easily, basically. On the 11th of June, 1993, a young 19-year-old girl named Elizabeth Stevens was studying at her TAFE in Frankston, the next suburb up from Seaford. For those who don't know TAFE, it's like a practical version of university. So similar to like a community college or, yeah, just a more hands-on version of uni. She lived in Langwarren with her aunt and uncle and had just settled into living with them after a bit of a rough patch with her parents separating. By all accounts, she was a lovely, shy girl who was just coming into her own, which makes these events so very sad. After she was finished her studies, she decided to catch the bus home from Frankston to Langwarren. It was raining heavily when she got to her stop in Langwarren. She wasn't aware that as she got off the bus, someone was watching her, following her as she began her walk home. She was walking along the suburban streets when Paul Denyer grabbed her from behind, threatening that if she screamed, she would be shot while pushing a gun-shaped object into her side. Little did she know, the gun was fashioned from aluminium piping and a wooden handle. Denyer led her through Langwarren towards Lloyd Park Reserve, 
Although they passed people in cars as they walked, the threat of being shot proved too great, and Denya pulled her close to trip passers-by into believing they were a couple. Once they reached Lloyd Park, Denya choked Elizabeth before cutting her throat and abusing her body until she passed away. Once she was gone, he stabbed and mutilated her breasts and stomach before walking to his girlfriend Sharon's house for a roast dinner. No empathy, no responsibility, and no remorse. That's... He just goes and casually just goes on to see his girlfriend. Yeah. He has a girlfriend? Meanwhile, Elizabeth's aunt and uncle decided to walk to the bus stop to meet her as she got off the bus. When the bus arrived, Elizabeth wasn't on it. They decided she'd probably be on the next bus and walked home to watch a movie. Later, as the movie finished, they began to get worried. It wasn't like Elizabeth to be late home. She was a very responsible girl and always returned home when she said she would. After driving the route she would have taken to get home from TAFE, her aunt and uncle decided it was time to contact the police and make a missing persons report. The next day at Lloyd Park, a man was collecting sticks to decorate like a Christmas tree. I think they must have been having a Christmas in July celebration or something. Um, The man was collecting sticks when he spotted a body. The man quickly jumped in his car and sped over to the nearby sports club. He called the police to let them know about his morbid discovery. The police rushed over to process the scene. It was still pouring with rain. As you can imagine, Elizabeth's aunt and uncle were absolutely devastated when they learnt the news that Liz had been found at the park. A life with so much promise taken far too early. Detectives began the hunt for the sadistic killer right away. They checked all the names of Elizabeth's fellow students against police, against police files to see if anything stood out. They made inquiries at libraries in the area to see if anyone had any information about her movements that day when she was studying. They set up a roadblock near the bus stop in Langwarren displaying a mannequin that had been dressed to look like Elizabeth did the day she went missing. They were hoping that someone in the community would have their memory jogged by this, but to no avail. The police definitely had a few initial and short-lived suspects when they went door-knocking in the area looking for information. One man slammed the door in their faces when they knocked and yelled at them to fuck off. When the police finally gained entry into the house, they found a large amount of blood inside. Eventually, they determined that the blood belonged to the man who had recently self-harmed. One of the few pieces of information the police were actually able to confirm was that Elizabeth had been at the fish and chip shop in Frankston between 3 and 4pm the day she disappeared. The owner of the shop remembered her buying either some hot chips or potato cakes. They were able to confirm that by the contents of her stomach at the post-mortem. On the 8th of July 1993, a 41-year-old Hungarian woman named Rosa Toth was on her way back home from work. She had caught the train to Seaford. She got off the train and started walking towards her home. As she was walking, she noticed a man hovering around the toilet block near the station. She didn't pay too much attention. As she continued to walk, the man grabbed her around the mouth and started to drag her towards the toilet block. Little did Rosa know, this man was the man who killed Elizabeth Stevens. After offering the man, Denya, her jewellery, a violent struggle ensued. As they struggled, a 12-year-old boy riding his bike spotted them fighting. He wasn't sure what to do, but assuming it was a domestic argument between a couple, he reluctantly continued up the road. Denya put his fake gun to Rosa's head, threatening her. Eventually Rosa was able to push Denya off her long enough to make a break for it towards the road. He grabbed her hair and pulled her back. Soon after, she was able to bite him on the hand, hard enough that she had an opportunity to escape. 
This time a car stopped for her and a woman jumped out to help her, offering her a ride home. When they arrived home, the woman stayed with Rosa as she called the police and waited with her until they arrived. The police were very disturbed by this report. They went to check the toilet block at the station, but by the time they got there, the man was gone. And well done to that woman, because not everyone would stop. And fair enough, because, yeah. you know, it is scary. You to think about whether you would stop if you saw yeah. someone that needed help. Like, I like to think that I would, but if I had my kids or something in the car. Mm. I think it's often safer to maybe drive a little bit up the road and call the police. Well, these days we can call the police because we've got a mobile phone. That's a phone. great point. In 1993, that would not have been an option. If she left her and went home to call the police by then, who oh, knows? You'd never forgive yourself. No. So good on her, yeah, honestly. She did the right thing in that situation. Debbie Freem was a 22-year-old country girl that moved to Seaford to escape from high unemployment rates and bad influences. With a bit of time, she had found her footing and was settled with her partner Gary and 12-day-old son Jake. By all accounts, they were extremely happy and life was coming together. Debbie loved being a new mum and loved her partner Gary. On the 8th of July 1993, the same night Rosa Toth was attacked, Debbie had her platonic friend Russell, who was an old workmate, over for a dinner of omelettes. They were chatting while baby Jake slept in another room. As she was about to cook dinner, she realised that she had forgotten the milk and asked Russell if it was okay for her to quickly pop down to the general store while he kept an ear out for Jake. Off she went in her grey Nissan Pulsar to the general store. Once there, she ran into the general store grabbing some milk and a carton of eggs Unfortunately, nobody saw Denya discovering that she had left her car unlocked and climbed into the back seat of her car, which is obviously everyone's worst nightmare. Absolutely. And especially in Victoria and Melbourne, I think we all have heard of this. It's in the back of everyone's head. Like it's if, like an urban legend for Yes. Us. Even people who don't specifically care for true crime and just want, don't know anything about it, this is the thing they know. Yeah, the story's kind of permeated society in a way. It absolutely has. As Debbie started up the car and began to reverse from her parking spot, Daniel put his hand over her mouth and his fake gun to her head and told her to do what he says or he'll kill her. Poor Debbie was so shocked she crashed her car into the side of the brick store. Daniel directed her where to go. He even directed her past her own house where her friend was waiting for her and her baby was sleeping peacefully. Now that's so yeah, sad. that's so close but so far. Witnesses later reported the pulsar swerving and high beaming as they drove through Seaford that night. There's nothing more she could have done. Yeah, she did everything she could have done. And then Debbie was gone. Russell began to get worried after Debbie had been gone a while. He decided to ring around the police and hospitals for any accidents that had taken place in the area. After the calls turned up nothing, he called Debbie's partner, Gary. Once Gary got home, the police were called again and the search for Debbie began. The next day, one of the police officers was on his way back to the station after an unrelated call-out when he noticed a grey Nissan Pulsar fitting Debbie's car description at a local Christian centre in Frankston. Upon inspection, police noticed that the seat was pushed right back, which was not consistent with how a short woman like Debbie would have had it. They also found traces of blood in the car. As the investigation continued... It came to light that Debbie had recently received threatening phone calls at home that had referred to her by name. It was unknown whether this was related to the case. On the 12th of July, a farmer checking his fences in Seaford noticed an object that looked somewhat like a mannequin in the distance. Upon closer inspection, he realised it was a body and that it might be Debbie Freem. He was aware of her disappearance from the heavy media coverage. 
The farmer called the police and not long after, the homicide squad arrived. Post-mortem revealed that Debbie had defence wounds and had been stabbed in the throat and stomach. She had also been strangled. Comparisons were drawn with Elizabeth's murder. There was no doubt they were extremely similar, but police did not want to become narrow-sighted. Although Debbie's top was lifted up when she was found, there was not thought to be a sexual assault. At the time, the most likely motives were thought to be a thrill kill or a robbery gone wrong. Mud at the crime scene matched mud on Debbie's car. Poor Gary was notified soon after Debbie was found and as expected, he was devastated. Police had a strong feeling that Debbie's murder and the attack on Rosa Toth were linked too. It was too big of a coincidence to have two violent attacks within one suburb on the same night. Following the news of Debbie's attack in the media, a local man called the police to report seeing a man get out of a grey pulsar at the Christian Centre earlier the day after Debbie went missing. The large, fair-skinned man with a dark jacket was seen to get out of the driver's seat and bolt across the road. At the time, the witnesses thought it was a drug deal. After realising the similarities between the two murders and the attack, the police began to form an MO for the potential serial killer. They brought in a well-known criminal profiler, Claude Minasini, to create a profile. Minasini pointed out that the women were being taken to an isolated location. The killer used strangulation, although appeared to have refined his technique, going from using his hands on Elizabeth to a cord on Debbie. Defence wounds by both women indicated that the fatal blows were inflicted during consciousness. The bodies were left only partially concealed, indicating that the killer wasn't bothered about the women being found quickly. The killer appeared to be sexually motivated, but potentially also felt inadequate to the women as he didn't unclothe them until after they had passed away. Minasini concluded that the killer was likely to be between 18 and 24, a similar age to his victims. He would be very familiar with the areas of Frankston, Seaford and Langwarren. He would be unemployed and not accountable to anyone with his time. The women of the southeast suburbs were terrified. And when they later do find Denya, that is spot on. Spot on. And I think it was the same actually with the Claremont case. I know we actually we'll, said that actually I think in the Claremont recording. Profile is such a like highly criticised profession, but I think in the case of these two crimes, with the same criminal profiler, Claude Minasini, he's actually done a really good job. On the 30th of July, 1993, a postwoman was doing her rounds, dropping off the mail. She saw a strange man in the car she noticed was slouching in a yellow Toyota Corona, and it looked like he did not want to be seen. It made her very uncomfortable. With the people of Frankston on edge, with the thought of a serial killer living amongst them, the woman decided it wouldn't hurt to report this man to police. She asked the resident at the next house she stopped at whether it was okay to use the phone and she was able to do that. That's another person we need to commend in this one as well because not everyone would do that. You might see a strange thing and then you'd just be like, oh, surely it's nothing. And she actually went to, it's not like she just had a phone on her, she actually went to the effort to go to somebody's house, make that slightly awkward call and, yes, she she did a great thing there. Also, at 2.30pm, the postwoman spotted a 17-year-old schoolgirl named Natalie Russell leaving John Paul College to head home for the day. She decided to take a popular shortcut down a bike track that runs between two golf golf courses. That was the last time she was seen alive. Natalie was a beautiful girl in her last year of high school. She was known as strong and feisty, but also responsible and reliable. 
A couple of hours later, Natalie's parents began to worry because it was very out of character for Natalie to be home late from school and not call them. When the 7.15pm bus came and went, they decided to call the police. Police snapped into action immediately and began the search for Natalie. At around 10pm, two SES workers walking down the bike track discovered Natalie's body through a hole that had been cut in the wire bike track fence. Not long after the discovery, the news was broken to Natalie's parents. As expected, they were devastated. At the post-mortem, it was determined that Natalie's throat had been cut and she had been beaten. As the pathologist worked, he discovered something else. Brave and strong, Natalie had grabbed a chunk of hair from her killer's head. As well as that, a piece of skin that didn't appear to be Natalie's was also found. Natalie had put up a huge fight and that would be her killer's undoing. After Natalie was discovered, the investigation began to come together. Not only had the postwoman spotted a yellow Toyota Corona the day before with a man hunching in it, but a police officer had also noticed the same car near the bike track and taken down its details. After interviewing the postwoman, the police decided this lead warranted further investigation. The car was registered to Paul Charles Denyer. Police decided to go and speak to Denyer. Upon meeting him at the door of his Frankston unit, they explained that they were there making inquiries about the murders of Elizabeth... Deborah and Natalie. Denya let them in. Police asked Denya to run them through what he had been up to the day before, the day that Natalie had been killed. Denya ran the police through his day matter-of-factly, explaining that the reason his car was at the golf course was that it had overheated. With that, he put himself at the vicinity of the crime scene of Natalie's murder. The police noticed a number of deep cuts on Denya's fingers. When asked, Denya stated he got his cuts working on his car under the bonnet the previous day. When pressed on his movements the night that Debbie went missing, Denya described every movement of his day with perfect accuracy. Police considered this strange. If you think back to your own life that amount of time ago, it's going to be hard to remember each step that you took, don't you reckon? Yeah, and he seemed to be like every single step. It's he like even... he'd been thinking about that day yeah. very carefully. So obviously this was extremely suspicious and again, with this crime, with Debbie's um, murder, he also placed himself at a location that was very close to where Debbie was at that milk bar. When it came to Elizabeth's murder, the same story. He remembered the day moment for moment. With that, police read Denya his rights and took him into the station for questioning. Denya denied his role in the murders for hours, but revealed more and more knowledge of the victims and crimes. He continually placed himself at the scene of the crimes it was obvious that Denya wasn't a smart man. It was stupid to think that trained police would not see through his lies. During the interview, Denya was asked for a sample of blood and his fingerprints. While waiting for the medical staff to come in and take his DNA, Denya asked an officer about the cross necklace he was wearing around his neck. Upon finding out that the officer was a Christian and inquiring about how long DNA tests take to yield results, Denya confessed. Disturbingly, not long after this, a female doctor entered the room to take samples and the officers noticed Denya's demeanour completely change. One minute he'd been calm and relaxed in the presence of only male officers and when the doctor entered the room, he became stiff and on edge. She was a female, obviously. Police described Denya as looking at the doctor like he would tear her to shreds if they weren't in the room. Denya displayed a complete lack of emotion and empathy throughout the interview. When asked why he had committed such atrocious crimes, Denya stated that it was just a feeling that he wanted to kill. 
He also described it as reaching a boiling point, stating, I've always wanted to kill. I was always waiting for the right time, waiting for that silent alarm to trigger me off. Disturbingly, Denya seemed almost annoyed at the women for trying to escape from him during being attacked and disgusted that they would try to bargain for their lives using whatever means they could think of, as if they owed him some type of sick loyalty. Denya admitted to cutting three human-sized holes in the wire fence on the side of one of the golf courses next to the bike track the day Natalie was murdered. As he saw her walking towards the bike track, he climbed through one of the holes to wait for her. When she passed the hole he was hiding in, he emerged from the hole behind her, quickly closing the distance between them. As she approached the second hole, he grabbed her around the neck and dragged her through the hole in the fence, which is so disturbing. Like, that is the stuff of nightmares and shows how much he was planning this. This man is the stuff of nightmares. In he my opinion, is, oh. he's he's that one. He's, like, not that one. There's lots and lots, but in my I opinion. I think as Melburnians, though, yep. he's, our, he's the serial killer that kind of like haunts us to this day. Cold, calculating and brazen, Denya was becoming more prepared but less in control of his murderous rage. Denya had become cocky after getting away with Elizabeth and Debbie's murder. Asked when he had first felt the urge to kill, Denya answered, 14 years old. He also admitted to hating women in general. A clinical psychologist that examined Denya found that he exhibited no remorse. He reveled in talking about his crimes. It was concluded there would be no effective treatment for Denya's antisocial and narcissistic personality disorders. He would remain a danger to women and the community at large forevermore. A judge put it well when he stated, For many, you are the fear that quickens their step as they walk home, or causes a parent to look anxiously at the clock when a child is late. This judge sentenced Denya to life, never to be released, a rare sentence in Australia, Unfortunately, on appeal, Denya was given a sentence much more true to Australia's far too lenient sentences, a non-parole period of 30 years. That's 10 years per life taken far too soon. 10 years per life that will never be lived to the fullest. 10 years per life that never reached its potential. To add to this, the year Denya is eligible for parole is 2023, which is disturbingly only six years away. This is I am. I really hope he doesn't this get out. I, I don't think he will. Like honestly, how can he? When there's been professional recommendations mm. that this man should, he's always going to be a danger to society. I really hope he just. I know. It's yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. If he gets out, I'm leaving Melbourne. I feel like there will be an uproar though if he gets out. I, I hope feel so. like enough people know about this case that there would be an uproar. I've seen um, a couple of what are they called those things that you sign petitions oh, i've seen a couple of petitions circulating um with signatures and stuff not to let him be released and i've signed a couple so hopefully yep. being in prison hasn't stopped denya from seeking media attention somehow denya managed to get the uk work address of his brother david and his wife julie who fled australia to the uk to escape from denya who had been threatening to kill julie and her children in 2004 Denya applied to have his name changed from Paul to Paula Denya. He claimed that he has gender dysphoria and now blames the murders on that. According to him, he has always felt like a woman and this caused him to seek revenge. Now, I know me and Bill have um, different opinions on this. So, Bill? Well, I just believe he may have that. But in my opinion, I still think it's... I still don't think any sort of taxpayer dollars should be put towards him getting any sort of changes. But um, whereas you believe he just is probably trying I to get... I believe 
I believe he has so few ways to gain control these days, being in prison, that this is his one, one way to still kind of keep us... This is his one way of really staying relevant and keeping some control and staying in the media, I guess. I kind of... I actually like that he's staying in the media. I think that's fantastic. Keep him in the media so people are reminded of his crimes so that when this parole potentially comes up, or, well, it will come up... Um, Hopefully we can get enough people sort of still remembering what he did and the absolutely messed up way he has of thinking. So, I mean, whether he's a woman or a man, to me it's it's so irrelevant. Like, yeah. yeah. In 2012, Denya was also accused of raping multiple men in prison after what began as a massage. From what I have read, the prison may be keeping this under wraps as Denya should not have had access to these inmates. There is an ongoing debate about whether rehabilitation is possible. My thoughts personally are that is that he can't be rehabilitated. I agree with that. Yeah, I think he's going to be a continuing danger to society and I think the fact that professionals were willing to stake their professional career on saying that, it speaks volumes to me. Um, he had a need for power and control over his victims, which I think is very concerning and I don't feel like this is something that is cured, especially in a prison environment. Um, my understanding is that the rehabilitation of someone with antisocial personality disorder, it is possible, but only if the person really wants to change. And I think because Denya also has those traits of narcissistic personality disorder, that's actually a far harder um, personality disorder to treat because people with narcissistic personality disorders rarely think that the problem lies with them. And that brings us to the end of episode one. Our thoughts go out to the families and victims. Thank you so much for listening. If you've made it this far, feel free to leave us any feedback or reviews. You can find our social media links in the description. Be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Thank you again, guys, and please stay safe.